Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast. I have the pleasure of taking you into a different type of a world that you may never have visited, and that is the risks associated with group homes for people with intellectual disabilities. Lori and I met earlier this year at the AALNC conference, and we had an opportunity to spend several hours together during a layover in the Baltimore, Washington International Airport, where I spent Lori, I spent nine hours and Lori was able to escape without having to spend all those nine hours while we were waiting for connecting flights. Lori is now part of the LNC Success Connection community. She is the CEO of Law Nursing Consulting, and she works with clients who have intellectual disabilities and the facilities to make sure that they are meeting all of the appropriate standards of care. She provides expert witness services as well as behind the scenes consulting. Lori, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Pat. It's great to see you again. Yes, we did have quite an afternoon at the airport. I'm glad you were there to uh, share that time with me. We did. It, it Chatting made the time go faster, for sure. Absolutely. When we're talking in this podcast about group homes for people with intellectual disabilities, first of all, let's give our listeners a context. Many of our listeners may be unfamiliar with the concept of what is a group home for patients with these needs. So first of all, can you give us a little bit of a framework, a frame of reference? Yeah. And actually I had no idea what a group home was before I went and interviewed for the job. It wasn't anything that I had run into, you know, in nursing school or in my career prior. Um, so a group home is a home where there are many different individuals. Generally for me, it's six to eight individuals and they have 24 hour staffing to take care of all their needs. Um, Sometimes they will go out to a day program for residential services during the day. Sometimes they'll go to jobs. Um, so it's it's definitely an interesting environment. They do try to keep the houses very homey. So it's not like back in the day when people were in institutions. Around 1990s-ish here in Rhode Island is when the institution started to close. The one we had here was called the Lad School. It was known for taking care of the feeble-minded which I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so the group homes are, like I said, very homey. The staff do all the cooking and cleaning and shopping, and they bring the residents with them. The residents will assist if they enjoy doing that. If they don't, they may not um, assist with the tasks around the house. Um, but it's it's just like you know any other home. People are trying to do the things they enjoy, um, my role is really to kind of case manage to make sure that they get all the health care that they need, depending on their needs. There's a lot of seizure disorders. So we do work with a lot of neurologists. 
we have a lot of patients, most of our patients actually will have either a behavioral disorder or a psychiatric disorder. So we work closely with psychiatric providers. Um, and then of course you always have that medical side too. When I think about a group home, then immediately I think, how are these services paid for? Is this private pay? Is this a government program that supports the, the needs of the individuals? So it is supported through Medicaid. Um, there is a, an agency called uh, Buddha Behavioral Health. I never remember it, departments, hospitalization, something very complicated mm -hmm. in Rhode Island that oversees um, the group homes. Um, they take a look and make sure that their uh, service plan is in place. Um, if it needs to be adjusted for more funding based on that person's need, whether they have a new onset medical problem or maybe they're just struggling behaviorally at that moment. Um, and they are the ones who provide the funding for the patients that live there. And then most of them have Medicaid for their medical coverage. And some do have Medicare, depending on their age. Okay. So it sounds like it's a government subsidized program. Mm -hmm. And then depending upon the resources of the individual, they might be on Medicaid, which is a program that people have to qualify for based on limited resources and mm -hmm. Medicare if they're over the age of 65. Yeah. And if their parent is over the age of 65, then they also qualify for Medicare, which is complicated to get that in place once the parent is of age. It seems to take a long time. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a sense of who are the, the residents in terms of their medical needs or psychiatric needs? You mentioned seizure disorders. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about who would qualify to be part of a group home. So hopefully they got involved with the system at a young age because most of our people do have a developmental dis, uh, disability, whether it's just intellectual or it's physical as well. Um, obviously the autism diagnosis we see quite often, uh, that tends to be our younger population. The residents that I had originally, a lot of them did come from the lad school. Um, and so the diagnoses were really not as good then. It was really MR mentally retarded, um, which we don't really use that anymore. Um, but as time has gone on, the diagnoses of these psychiatric disorders has definitely come a long way. So we see a lot of people with mood disorders, bipolar, um, schizophrenia, psychotic symptoms, um, really the whole gamut. A lot of anxiety and depression, a lot of self-injury. Yeah, the Is whole gamut really. Would somebody who had sustained a traumatic brain injury be a potential candidate for a group home? Yes. And actually in Rhode Island, there is another agency who specializes in traumatic brain injury group homes. Um, those patients tend to be a lot younger and a lot more physical. Um, so their needs may be a little bit different than some of the population that I see who are a little more um, a little more disabled, might need a little bit more medical care, a little bit more psychiatric care, and aren't so young and strong, although we do have some of those as well. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the concept of young and strong gives me the chills, Lori, when I think about some of the risks associated with risks to the staff, risks to other clients who are in the facility. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how that gets managed? 
So um, it's different in every home because the needs are very different and those needs always change um, as new residents come in and older residents leave. Um, so we don't do restraint anymore. We stopped using restraint um, quite a while ago in the group home. Um, in the past, it was called prone restraint where staff would just kind of get on a patient and have them lay on their stomach and hold them down. And so we don't do that anymore. But some of the residents that have gone through that um, still get very anxious that that might happen. So now we use a trauma-informed care called Eukaru. It's E-U-K-E-U-R-U, Eukaru. And what that is, is training where they use these big blocking pads. There's actually big pads and there's smaller pads. And so they use those to either protect somebody. If somebody is, you know, banging their head on the wall, they could put a pad in between. If somebody is upset and walking around angrily, they can use the pads to protect themselves, the staff, as well as the other residents in the home and kind of guide them to either their bedroom or a safe place in the home. The concept that you just shared of the prone restraint, which is something that is not being done, makes me think about the people who have been asphyxiated when mm -hmm. they've been placed on their stomach and their airway is not protected. And sometimes a staff member could pile on top of that person. I've seen it happen in hospitals. Um, I don't think I will ever forget the video I saw of four prison guards who took a man out of a cell who was actively hallucinating and put him face down and smothered him with a pillow and then were surprised when they rolled him over <clears throat> and found out that he wasn't breathing well he ended up with anoxic brain damage i can see why some of your residents would think about what it felt like to be restrained face down and that sensation and not ever want to go through that again. Right. And they do still use that um, in the pediatric programs at times, depending on the home and the needs. Um, so that makes it challenging when we do have a young adult that is no longer in the, the children's program and comes to the adult world because we don't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of expecting it and their behavior might, you know, indicate that, um, you know, recently I was there during a pretty intense behavioral episode um, where the resident continually was banging his head on the floor. Terrible to see, even though it's padded, um, but then just kind of got up out of nowhere and ran after one of the staff members. Fortunately, it was a bigger type guy who was able to kind of catch him as he fell onto his back. Um, but yeah, it gets pretty intense sometimes for both the residents and the staff. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the staff. What kind of background do they have? What kind of training do they have? There's so many challenges and situations that would warrant knowing how to handle something on the spot, instinctively being able to pull on training. You don't have a chance to go over and let me look up the procedure on what do I do when this happens? Right, right. They definitely have to think on their feet a lot. Um, the staff come from all different backgrounds. Like I said, this this staff was um, the site supervisor, actually a bigger kind of guy. Um, the other site supervisor is in completely opposite. She's a little tiny kind of girl, um, you know, and moms, dads, older people, people that are, you know, really just out of high school, some of them. Um, 
it's funny because the residents, some of the residents who are higher functional be like, so-and-so doesn't even know how to cook. They couldn't make a salad Mm -hmm. (laughs) because they're so young. So we do provide a lot of training for our staff, including some information on meal prep, but basically it's a lot of training on first aid, signs and symptoms of illness, passing Mm -hmm. medications, bring the residents to the doctor's appointments, how to advocate for the patient that they're with, how to make sure that they are bringing back the information from the doctor to the house, to the nurse, so that we can follow up on those recommendations. So they have a lot of training that they go through. Um, and every year there's you know review trainings with first aid and the Ukuru, um, medication administration. And then of course, there's always new trainings that we do to kind of expand on their knowledge, especially if they have someone in the home with autism or borderline personality disorder and dementia are a lot of the ones that we try to provide more education on. And then I'm assuming that they have to know how to safely intervene if there's resident on resident, mm-hmm. or I don't know if you use the term resident, patient, client, whatever is the right noun. It's, it's Yeah, it seems to be resident and client are the ones that are used most. All right. So if they are indeed getting into an altercation with each other, staff have to know how to safely come in without getting hurt themselves. Right, right. So that's where the Ukuru training comes into place. But mm-hmm. each person also has their own behavioral health plan. So they there are strategies to be working with each client to kind of de-escalate them to what uh, certain behaviors to watch for that might be a uh, um, antecedent to another behavior. Um, so we work very closely with our behavioral health clinician who provides behavioral health plan of care for the staff. And then I put together the medical plan of care. Obviously, there's a lot of crossover. We work together very closely, um, behavioral health and myself, because I oversee the psychiatric and all the medical appointments. So I need to make sure that if behavioral health thinks the person is decompensating, that that's um, communicated to the psychiatric physician so that we can get a change in medication, whether it just be for as needed medication for some anxiety or agitation, um, obviously seizure medication. I follow up with the neurologist if we're seeing more seizure activity than normal. So the patients can be quite complicated, especially when they are nonverbal. So it takes a lot of investigation and I really depend on my staff a lot to um, observe and document and communicate what they're seeing, especially any changes in their um, behaviors. Of course, because they are non-medical people and they have to be able to convey to you what changes that they're seeing to indicate whether that person needs to be seen by a physician or go to an emergency department or have an adjustment in medication. Yeah. Yeah. And I uh, play triage nurse when they call me and I have to decide whether I want them to go to their own physician, urgent care, or the ER. Um, Lately, our one of my urgent cares has um, not been very helpful. So I've had to use the ER a little more than I would like to recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always that fine call of, okay, what's going on with this person? Or do they need emergency care? Or are we going to be able to get away with just sending them to urgent care? Because we don't want to mm-hmm. use the emergency room if we don't need to, because there's lots of other people that are sick and need those services. Yes. 
and sometimes waiting a long time in order to get attention. Right, right. Are you responsible for overseeing more than one facility? Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. Introducing Expert Edu, the revolutionary mobile app designed exclusively for legal nurse consultants. Are you tired of being tied to your desktop, waiting for your laptop to boot up, and struggling with slow Wi-Fi connections? Those days are over. I'm Pat Iyer, the developer of Expert Edu. With my app, you can now carry your favorite legal nurse consulting content right in the palm of your hand. No more lugging around heavy laptops or dealing with cumbersome URLs and login processes. It's time to take your learning on the go. What can you expect from Expert Edu? Let's take a closer look. First, we have Legal Nurse Podcasts, where you can immerse yourself in informative and intriguing discussions on various Legal Nurse topics. Listen and learn during your daily commute or while enjoying a leisurely stroll in the park. Watch our video or listen to the audio version. Looking for insightful articles and thought-provoking content? Our app brings you a collection of blogs written by me, ensuring that you develop deep knowledge of marketing, finance, client relationships, business development, and LNC expertise. The app also lets you connect with our trusted partners and resources to expand your business capabilities and help you shine. Do you need a more visual approach to learning? We've got you covered with a library of educational videos. Best of all, Expert Edu also provides access to a treasure trove of free resources, including templates, guides, and reference materials that will be invaluable to you in your legal nurse consulting practice. Are you ready to experience the convenience and power of Expert Edu? Don't wait another moment. Download the Expert Edu app today from the Apple App Store for iPhone or Google Play for Android and take your legal nurse consulting career to the next level. Expert Edu is your legal nurse consulting content always within reach. Now let's return to the show. Um, I have four group homes. Um, I work 32 hours a week because I do have a day that I uh, work on my legal nurse consulting um, mm -hmm. as well as on the weekends. So I'm fortunate where I, I work four days a week. So I have about 29 patients that I case manage for. And I do have one, we have some new services we're offering and it's called supported living arrangements. And that is where somebody with developmental disabilities actually lives with a home provider. So this resident that I have used to be in a group home and she transitioned into a, a family situation with a staff that she used to have with her and her daughter and her um, boyfriend. So I oversee the medical for that client. Mm -hmm. 
Now, is it common, do you know, throughout the country to have registered nurses who are serving as case managers in the role that you're in, or is this more specific to your state? I believe it, it happens. All, I know it happens in Connecticut. I'm right on the Connecticut line. So I do know mm -hmm. that Connecticut provides the same kind of services. They often refer to them as consulting services. I refer to it as case management because I am overseeing every aspect of that person's medical and psychiatric care, as well as communicating to the family if need be. Um, so we work very closely with the family as well for our residents that do have families. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's think about um, a resident calls up a family member and says, I got hurt. Uh, what are some of the hazards that you have to work with other than some of the things that we've talked about already associated with assault or seizures? Um, obviously every resident is different and every family is different. So it really just kind of depends on that. Um, on that situation and obviously, and what the injury. So some of our residents um, have some relationship with their family that they might see them occasionally and the parents are really not that involved. Um, and then others have much closer relationship. So for example, um, I've had a patient who is very involved with his mom. His mom is very involved in his care and he's had some psychiatric changes because that was what the family wanted, some medication changes. Um, so he's kind of decompensated and is having a lot more hallucinations and things. Um, but it's hard for families to kind of navigate what their needs are, what should be done next, especially if they end up in the emergency room, if there should be medication changes, should they go to an inpatient psychiatric stay? or are they safe enough to return back to the group home? We really do try very hard to work with our providers to keep people in their homes versus going to the emergency room and using a psychiatric bed, which mm -hmm. is a good thing because most recently I heard there's 60 people waiting for inpatient beds. In psychiatric units? Yeah. And that would be at your local facility? Throughout the state, yep, 60 Throughout people. Throughout the state. Hmm. Let's hope they don't decompensate in the meantime. Yeah. I'm thinking about a group home that is in our town. It has six women with Down syndrome who are in the facility. Having lived in this town for at least uh, 35, 40 years, I remember seeing articles in the newspaper about resistance from the neighborhood to having a group home located where it is. And it's on the main street in our town. Our town, if you hold your breath, you can get through the town without exhaling. It's that small of a place. So people know what's going on in the town. And the house is has a long driveway and the front of the house faces the driveway and it's behind a, a, a hedge of trees. So unless you knew it was there, you wouldn't necessarily notice it. And there's no sign out front. Right. The resistance seemed to disappear when the neighborhood found out that it was women who would be in the group as opposed to men. So I wondered if you could comment about you know, some of the adjustment that's necessary for a neighborhood to accept and integrate the fact that they have a group home now with residents who've got 
a variety of needs that might not be present, could be present in a single family home and we wouldn't know it, but typically mm -hmm. raises some concerns. Yeah. Um, well, we haven't had a situation where it was like a newly opening group home. So I would think the people when they purchased the home would have known that that was right next door or down the street. Um, but there have been incidents where sometimes somebody will, you know, get outside because we don't lock the doors. They're adults. So they have human rights and they have the right to have their door unlocked and go outside if need be. And sometimes it's a very busy place. So sometimes they might go wandering a little bit and go see the neighbor. And that's not always what the neighbor is expecting, especially if they, you know, walk right in the backslider door. Um, so we have had situations where we've had to deal with that. Um, not too long ago, I was actually there when um, the police officer came and he was actually very understanding. I was very impressed because he was more concerned about the resident and what would happen if they really got lost. Mm -hmm. um, so I was really impressed by that. Um, but we've done a lot of environmental changes and programming for that one resident to kind of keep him from going and visiting uninvited. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. yeah. And then we've talked a little bit about some hazards. If you were asked, what are some of the common liability issues for group, group home settings? Mm -hmm. What would that list encompass? Well, eloping would be one for sure, especially if somebody really got lost. Um, we've had, you know, situations in the past where people have gotten lost in forests. It's getting dark. We do have to call in um, for additional assistance. Um, someone who was confused was thought that they were um, out in the community and it turned, turned out they were hiding in their closet. So eloping is definitely one. Um, any sort of assault onto another resident is always a concern. Um, staff will often also get injured on the job. Um, hopefully it's just mild. Um, some staff have had worse injuries. Um, obviously sexual abuse could happen. I fortunately have not had any residents that I've had that situation come up. Some of the residents do have a history of past sexual um, assault or incidents prior to them coming to the group home. So sometimes that will come up. And if that resident is talking about that situation and they're in the hospital, the hospital will have to look into that further because they don't know if that incident just happened or if that is an old, old past um, mm -hmm. incident that that person will bring about when they're um, stressed and anxious. Um, falls are huge. A lot of the residents take medications that can affect their um, their gait, ambulation, as well as uh, make them sleepy. So falling is always a concern. Um, and obviously any injuries that could occur from that fall. So we're always looking to see what can we do um, next times to prevent that fall. So fall pre prevention is huge. And then the next step is if a suit is filed or a family member goes to a plaintiff attorney and, and the LNC is working on that case, where would the LNC go to find out the standards that would be applicable for that situation? So Medicare, Medicaid, um, 
does oversee it, but they usually will defer to the state. So you would need to go to the state and see what their um, standards of care are, what the human rights are, because there are times when we will ask human rights to um, change things in the plan. Behavioral health will take care of that, such as something like um, a bedroom being locked. If it's not safe for a resident because of their seizure disorder or their behavioral disorder, they may not be able to have their bedroom locked and we'll go to human rights to get that approved. Um, so certain rights should be available to everybody, but sometimes they're not, they're not if there's a special circumstance. But again, they would have to be okayed by human rights. So that would be an issue to look at. Um, as far as documentation, there's lots and lots of documentation. Each group home or company, I should say, probably does it a little bit different. We are fortunate where most of our documentation is electronic, so I can check on um, medication administration and seizures and behavior tracking and all those things um, from wherever I am. Mm -hmm. There's a small amount of documentation that's done in the home right now, and that still is by staff and myself. It's called a medical log, and that is part of their medical record. That's kind of their, their daily, um, every shift type documentation of what's going on in the home. So those things would be important to take a look at. All right. And those I assume would be discoverable. Are they kept per client or do they have to be redacted? Per client. Per client. Okay. Yep. So an attorney in an LNC would be able to refer to that log in order to get more information about what might have transpired right. Right. in a situation. Yep. And we do um something similar to incident reports called significant event reports. Mm -hmm. So those are done for any fall, any um, emergency room trip, any big behavioral um, incident that somebody could have gotten hurt in. Um, med medication errors, we'll do uh, significant event reports for. So those mm -hmm. are in place also. Mm -hmm. Again, that's a tool for our agency to kind of review so that we can um, look at systems, whether the system needs to be improved, whether staff needs more education, or how we can, you know, improve the next time so that same incident doesn't occur. And I want to go back to one thing that you said before I ask you my last question. You mentioned the Human Rights Committee. Tell us a little bit about that. I'm not familiar with that term for Rhode Island. We have ombudsmans in some states that mm -hmm. work as watch guards, for example. Is this something similar? It is something similar. And I don't actually attend those meetings. The behavioral health mm -hmm. clinician does. Um, but I do know that they meet monthly, although they can contact them in between if there's a need. Um, for example, if somebody all of a sudden starts to have more falls and they're falling out of bed. And so we think we want to have an alarm system so that we know, or if we need a camera so that we can visualize them, those would all be things that we would have to get um, the human rights committee to sign off on. Sometimes we will have to um, lock refrigerators even. I've had somebody in the past who would like to go in there and eat some raw meat. So we had to get the Human Rights Committee to approve that for us. But we still have to find a way that the other residents can access food also because it's their right to be able to access their food it's just because the other person needs it to be locked. So it can be complicated at times and we are very creative in how we come up with um, ways to have human rights for some and protect others. 
You know, Laurie, I can't help but think about my psychiatric nursing training that I had in the 1960s within a huge state facility where what you have just described, it would be a totally different universe yeah. where individuals were strapped down, where they were put in freezing bathtubs, where they were still doing insulin shock at the time that I was going through training. They were doing electric shock. There was not a thought about human rights right. and how far we have come in managing the needs of vulnerable people. We have come a long way. We still have a long way to go. Um, and I think that we definitely are moving in that direction. But yeah, it's quite interesting to think about. I actually did have a patient um, when I first started at the agency that had a lobotomy. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Just yep. take out that frontal lobe. Just yep. Sever it from the rest of the brain and yep. then well, the person will become more cooperative. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but it was pretty interesting to work with him over the years because he had limited verbal skills, but they actually, they got better over time. Not mm -hmm. dramatically, but he definitely was able to um, have, have more sayings over the years. So that was interesting. I'm like, so even, even though this older gentleman had a lobotomy, he still is, you know, learning new things and having new skills. So the brain's pretty uh, mm -hmm. amazing. That goes back to the that uh, neuroplasticity concept of how yeah. we yeah. regenerate. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the things we try to reinforce with staff, you know, just because we tried that two years ago and it didn't work doesn't mean it won't now, you know, everyone mm -hmm. changes. So let's just try this again to see if, if it, you know, helps that person. Mm-hmm. I know that our discussion today has probably stirred up some questions in people's minds, and they may want to contact you about evaluating a group home case and serving as a consultant or expert. What would be the best way for them to connect with you? So they could go to my website, and that's uh, lawnurseconsulting.com, or they could email me, and that's Lori, L-A-U-R-I-E, at lawlegalnurseconsulting.com. Thank you, Lori. I appreciate what you've shared. You've opened up a little window for us just for a peek to look at some of the, the structures of a group home, some of the liability issues, the risks. And I've been impressed with how you've stressed the creative ways that you need to work on satisfying people's needs, still respecting their rights, and then protecting them from injury and protecting others around them from injury. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's a different day at work every day, which is, it, you know, definitely keeps my interest. There's always something new and exciting going on, whether it's good or bad. I am sure. And for those of you who've been watching us, thank you for being with us. You can see our podcast on Legal Nurse Business on our YouTube channel, or you can listen to them on the audio spots, such as Spotify, Apple Podcast, and other platforms. We will be back next week with a new guest, new topic. Stay tuned in just a minute or so when you see who's coming up next. And in the meantime, if you have not downloaded our app called Expert Edu from the Apple Store or from Google Play, for Android, please check it out. We provide tips on writing and on legal nurse consulting each week on our, our app called Expert Edu. 
Stay tuned for what's coming up next. This is Pat Iyer with Lori Morgan. And coming up next, you'll have an opportunity to find out more about a special environment that is filled with challenges and risks, and that is the group home. Lori is a case manager managing four facilities and a total of, I believe, she said 29 residents to look at their healthcare needs and make sure that the facilities and the staff are effectively dealing with those. Lori, what were some of the topics that we covered in your podcast? So some of the topics we talked about today, Pat, were what is a group home? What kind of residents live in those group homes? What kind of staff work in those group homes to support those patients and their educational needs and training that they get? And we also talked about some of the um, dangers to both the staff and the residents in, in the group home. Thank you, Lori. You will learn a lot, dear listener, dear viewer, from this podcast I'm sure you're going to be inspired and it will stir up some questions in your mind. So be sure to check out this podcast coming up next on Legal Nurse Podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you, Pat. Coming up next, you'll have an opportunity to go into the world of the wound ostomy continence nurse as we focus on some of the aspects related to the appropriate treatment of pressure wounds. Terea Rodriguez is my guest. She has a doctorate in healthcare administration. She's well-certified and knowledgeable in the wound care world. And we just finished a podcast. Terea, can you give our listener just a little taste of some of the topics that we covered in your podcast? Well, thank you, Pat. Today that we covered uh, um, the risk of having a deep wound and for osteomyelitis, we covered it in that area. And also about pack, reading the package insert and knowing about treatments and whether or not it's the correct treatment or did they actually follow the manufacturer's guidelines. We covered a lot in this topic in this podcast. Uh, you'll get some tips about evaluating the medical records specifically related to was the treatment appropriate for that type of pressure sore? And specifically, did the providers use a combination of a medication that can be inactivated by another substance that might be involved in wound care? You'll have to watch Terea's podcast to find out what I am talking about. And that'll be coming up next on Legal Nurse Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode 
and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.